Hey, good morning. I hope you guys are warm this morning. And uh, I, uh, <clears throat> I'm glad to see uh, my friend Marky Mark here this morning. All right. <laughs> I know that Mark has gotten older and his vision isn't that good because I, I said, Brother, you look good this morning. He said, So do you. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, my. That's my poor brother. Hey, listen, we are uh, in our study in 2 Thessalonians, and uh, we're in chapter 2. We're actually finishing out chapter 2, right? And um, what we're going to do this morning is because the uh, scripture that we're going to be covering as we finish out chapter 2 begins with a statement of contrast. You know what I mean by a statement of contrast? He's drawn a distinction between the group he addressed beforehand and the group he's addressing afterwards. And so, and, and there's certain characteristics and certain uh, uh, scenarios that are playing out that are diametrically opposed. And so there's this, this statement of contrast. But, and so to, to explain to you uh, and to do my due diligence and trying to paint a picture that is accurate with the scripture, we're just going to cover that scripture, okay? And you'll begin to see uh, what I'm talking about as we begin to identify certain characteristics in a, in a certain group of people that Paul's addressing, and then how he transitions uh, in this closing statement in chapter 2, okay? Everybody with me? I've not lost anybody, right? Everybody's, everybody's still on the, on the tracks. No one derailed, okay? So what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray right now, and I need you guys to be praying that God would uh, use a vessel such as myself with uh, all of my deficiencies in trying to communicate uh, my, my, my stammering, stuttering, all those things that kind of play out in, in my uh, 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 need to try to express to you. I need you to pray for me this morning that I would be able to, uh, in, in a fashion, in a clear fashion, Wendy, articulate what's in the scripture to the benefit of you and myself and, and uh, the world because you'll be carriers of what we're going to share this morning, okay? Okay, so let's pray and then we're going to read this and we're going to jump into it. We're going to unpack it. And then we're going to baptize a couple young ladies. Amen? Amen. Amen. It's going to be a a good morning. Good morning. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. These are the verses we covered last week, 1 through 12. And then we're going to shift in the closing statements or the the final remarks there in chapter 2. It says, verse 1 through 12, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and... Our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us. So this is a false teaching that's been credited to Paul, Timothy, and Silas, or Silvanus, depending on what translation uh, you're reading from. Whether by a prophecy or by a word or uh, word of mouth or by a letter, saying that all three facets of those can deliver something that is not true. So it's not the method by which they're delivered that counts. It's the content of the message that is delivered that counts. And you'll see this play out as we close today. He says, or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion or the apostasy 
occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. I like how Paul puts that in there. Understand the adversary is doomed for destruction. Don't, don't let that slip your mind. Right? And then, and then he goes on and he says this. <clears throat> he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. Now this is what Daniel said. So that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. This is the abomination of desolation, right? We talked about this last week. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that. Moving on. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. And now you know what is holding him back. You see the power of God, the influence of God, the Spirit. God remains in control so that he may be revealed at the proper time which God determines. Though the enemy is out there and he's raging war and he's running rampant, there's a time, there's a time that God will determine to be proper when all this will take place, revealing that God is the one that is still maintaining ultimate control over the destiny of all creation. Right? You with me? You understand this? Okay. For the secret power of, the lawless, of lawlessness is already at work. We know this. Open your eyes. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way or no longer impairs. The lawlessness. Literally means he's holding it back. He's the great restrainer, right? It says, and then the lawless one, lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus, watch, will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Right? The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He's predictable. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. He's a deceiver. He's a deceiver. Understand this. And, and it says, uh, deceives those who are perishing or serve the lie in all the ways uh, that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Statement of contrast, next verse. And this is where we're at, okay? This is where we're picking up. We're going to start unpacking this. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So right there, right off the bat, and I want you to understand that as he draws this contrast. He, draws, he says, but... And, and then he goes on to say, we ought always to thank God for you. Now, some of you guys are going to remember when we've done this study in chapter 1, this very phrase he had already used, right? And he had used the exact same Greek word, ophilo, right? Ophilo, that was the word that he had used, and it means to be indebted or to owe. So when he says um, uh, right here, we ought to always thank God for you, ought is that indebted word, ophilo. 
Matter of fact, Romans chapter 13 verse 8 says this, using the exact same word and our indebtedness to one another. This is what he says, Paul, in Romans chapter 13. Owe no one anything except the debt. Oh, except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. What's Paul saying? Is there is this indebtedness that we have for the work of God in all of our lives that we should remain constantly in a thankful posture for what God has done in the lives of each of us. Right? When we look into the lives of one another, when I look into your lives and I see the work of God being done and fleshed out, there ought to rise up in me this sense of thankfulness for what God is doing in and through you. Right? And so Paul reiterates this. Now the funny thing is the fact that he does reiterate this just one chapter later. As a matter of fact, in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, right out of the gate, Paul says, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightfully so. It is right to be thankful because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Why is Paul saying to them once again to be thankful for one another? Well, I'm going to give you a little insight to this, and this is very obvious, and you and I know this. It is because we as creations, we as fallen, uh, uh, as fallen agents, we have a tendency naturally to move away from being thankful. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, do you not? I mean, thankfulness, and he, he reiterates it, and he brings us back to being thankful for the work of God in one another's life. He does that because we need to constantly be training ourselves in our minds and in our spirits to return to a posture of thankfulness. And you're like, oh, no, Trent, I'm always thankful. Come on now. Come on, come on. Don't, don't make me call your wife. Don't make me call your husband. Don't let me talk to your kids. You know exactly what I'm th- talking about and the tendency we have to stray away from thankfulness. Man, we can have a thousand things taking place in our life that are advantageous and beneficial to us. And for whatever reason, we can completely lose sight of that. And the one thing that is a jar or uh, that is out of line with our uh, lives, we concentrate on that and thankfulness then escapes us, right? Am I the only one? Now, if you are new to the church and you're like, What's going on downstairs? What is that sound? What is that music? What is that worship? That's our children downstairs. And so I've said, if I've said once, I've said a hundred times, whenever you hear that music of worship coming up through the floor, it just so happens, it just sits right where we need to be sitting in the scripture today. When we hear that music coming up through the floor and our children down in worship, you know what we ought to be? Thankful. (laughs) <laughs> we ought to be thankful, right? We, it ought to stir us, right? It ought, it ought to charge us, energize us. But, but thankfulness is something that we have to train ourselves in. We have to make ourselves be thankful or at least bring our minds and our spirits into submission to choose to be thankful. Romans chapter 12, 
Man, this ain't, this ain't a shocker to you guys. Verse 1 and 2 says this, Therefore I urge you, this is Paul speaking to the church in Rome, Brothers and sisters, you guys, in view of God's mercy, right? Considering what God's done. He says, to offer you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And he says, do not conform to the pattern in this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. An unthankful mindset is one that is undisciplined and untrained. And in that state, I'm telling you, it begins to create in us a fog that doesn't allow us to measure, test, and approve what the perfect and pleasing will is of God in our lives, right? Because we sometimes get so overwhelmed in the, in the things we don't have, in the things that, we, that aren't working for us, as opposed to the many blessings that we do have. And Paul says to them once again, be thankful. Be thankful for one another. Now, then he goes on and he gives in this verse, the next verse, the why behind the thankfulness. Because we ought to be able to identify some things we're thankful for. Not just say, well, I'm thankful. Thankful for what? And you're like, eh, I, don't, I don't know. Give me a minute. Man, this stuff should ought to be sitting, I mean, literally on, on the tip of our, our, of our tongues, man. That we ought to be, it ought to just spill right out, man. I mean, we should be saturated with thankfulness in a sense that when life squeezes, the first thing that's just going to pour out from the brim of our lips, man, is, is the thankfulness that we have towards God, right? So, so what Paul says right here is a cause for their thankfulness. He says, because God chose you as first fruits. Now listen, I don't need to go into all that and say, well, what does that mean? First fruits, last fruits, mid fruits? It just simply means first to come to faith. You guys know that I talked to you that 1 Thessalonians is the oldest book in the New Testament. Older than the Gospels, older than, other, older than Revelations. It's one of the first books, that, well, the first book, most, most theologians think, that the Apostle Paul wrote. These are some of the first converts to the faith. These were one of the first young churches. And this was a church that was born over a period of three weeks. And man had become energized, man, with the power of God. I mean, there were some incredible things, man, being born out of this church. And, and he says, because God chose you as first fruits, early to the faith, to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Hey, man, if you have nothing else, nothing else, and you know that you've been chosen, God has poured his goodness and his mercy into your life, that in itself should generate a thankfulness in you. Whether or not all your bills are paid, whether you got four ball tires on your car or not, whether or not uh, the trash man picked up your trash this week, regardless of any of those things, I heard you complaining about it, Ryan Wofford. All right, no matter what's going on, if God is, I'm just kidding, I didn't hear that. Maybe that's a prophetic word, I don't know. But listen, listen, if God's pouring uh, 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 nothing else but that, it should fill us with thankfulness, right? If I have nothing else, if I'm a partner, man, but I have God's goodness, I should be a man that is thankful, filled to the brim, right? He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus. Now, listen, listen. Recognize that the cause for being thankful is different in this verse than it was in the previous chapter. Now, this isn't a contradiction of statement. 
Now, when Paul says in the first chapter, look, in, in verse 13, he says be, or in, in verse 3, when he says, be thankful because your faith is growing and your love for one another is increasing. And then he comes back in chapter 2 and he says, be thankful because uh, you are God's first fruits. This isn't a contradiction of why we're to be thankful. What the apostle Paul is saying is that our thankfulness is layered, man. This is just one more thing to add to this beautiful expression of God's generosity that we ought to be thankful for. It's a layer, I mean layer after layer. And I know we go through difficult things. I know we lose our loved ones. I know we struggle as we watch them fight through difficult health conditions and we sit up in hospitals and nursing homes. I know, I know life is difficult as our marriages are on the rocks. I know when our children have strayed away and are living lives that will ultimately... I know all that is heartbreaking things. Yet with that, they cannot touch the thing that God has done in our heart and our lives. And it should remain in us always forever thankfulness. Unapproachable. That the world can't reach in and rob us and destroy us of those things that God has fixed in our heart. Right? I think it was Matthew Henry. How many here like Matthew Henry? Okay, all, all, everybody that's in Monday night Bible studies like, yeah, I love Matthew Henry. <laughs> great theologian, Matthew Henry. A great man of God. Trusted in teaching the scripture. Acknowledged to be a valid, reputable teacher of the scripture. Matthew Henry addressed and, and told the story of, of him being robbed one time and how he was robbed at, at, at gunpoint and yet remained thankful. He said, let me be thankful after having been robbed first because I was never robbed before. Hmm. Second, because although they took my wallet, they did not take my life. Amen. Let me be thankful. Third, let me be thankful that although they took my all, it was not much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed and not I who was robbing. Thankfulness is a posture of the mind and the spirit, not a product of our emotions. Literally, we must choose to be thankful. Choose it. Then he goes on and he says this. So then, brothers and sisters, and he's closed, and we only have a few more verses, and I know you're excited about that. So then, brothers and sisters, this is a term of conclusion, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Or by letter. He says right here, to stand firm. Now this is the opposite of what was accompanied by the false teaching that we had read earlier. Remember when he said don't become unsettled, agitated, shaken in your thoughts and in your minds is what the Greek would actually translate that to render out of verse 2. Because What he says is do not become easily unsettled or alarmed. He says this, to stand firm. It's the Greek word stako. 
Not stucco on your house, but stucco. And it means a persevering posture or stance. The idea of persevering through circumstances in light of who you are. Notice what he says there at the very beginning. So then, brothers and sisters. Now, I don't know how many of you guys have ever uh, read, seen, tried to watch, fell asleep, J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings. Anybody in here? Okay, the rest of you all have wasted your lives then. Okay, listen, listen. In, in the third installment, which return, or the, the, the whole Lord of the Rings was actually one installment. We know that, right? I'll, I'll give you a little understanding of how Tolkien. The book was so thick that the publisher said, no one's going to buy a book this thick. Break it up into three books. And that's basically what ended up happening. The book was split up into three. The third installment of the, of the book, or the story, was one called Return of the King. Now, if you know anything about J.R.R. Tolkien, you know that he was a Christian. And you understand when you watch, read these stories and whatnot, you begin to see how his, his faith is fleshed out in these storylines. Even some of the characters, you begin to identify with certain characteristics and resemblances to characters of the Scripture. It's a, power, it's a powerful allegory almost. But there's a beautiful scene in Return of the King. And the, the scene is somewhat haunting. And it's because there's this city of kings called Gondor. You with me? Gondor, the city of kings. Right? Beautiful city. Well, it's under attack uh, from uh, Mordor, the land where all evil things take place. When you translate Mordor from the Latin, it means Hollywood. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. It's a joke. Sort of. All right? All right? So you got the city of kings, Gondor, under attack from the forces of Mordor. And there's a beautiful scene where the armies of Mordor are so vastly larger than those protecting the city that there's no way they're going to come out of this. And one of the protagonists of, uh, uh, of the story is an old gray-bearded old cat named Gandalf the White. Anybody with me? Gandalf. And Gandalf approaches the gate that's being uh, assaulted by the evil forces. And he says to the men of Gondor, he literally says these very words, You are soldiers of Gondor. No matter what comes through that gate, you will stand your ground. The Apostle Paul is saying something very similar. He's basically saying right here in this moment, brothers and sisters, loved by God, stand firm. That's what he's saying. Stand firm. Be rooted. Gripped in your faith. And you and I need to be individuals who can identify who we are Brothers and sisters, loved by God, first fruits. And because of that, it should enable us to understand that within us is the power of God that can allow us to stand firm under any testing, any trial, any difficulty, any assault. And the Apostle Paul isn't asking of them something that God isn't willing to supply to them. 
So when, when the, the, uh, uh, the, the directive is given to stand firm, this isn't, this isn't some proposition. It's a directive. It's a command to stand firm. It's because God is willing to give you what is needed to do it, to accomplish it. Right? And then he says, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we pass on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Hold fast, kriteo in the Greek. It means to seize or to take custody of. When he says hold fast, and what is he saying hold fast to? The teachings. The teachings that God had given them through the Apostle Paul, through Timothy, through Silas, Silvanus. Hold fast to the teachings. I remember several years ago I went to watch Tim Strait. He was coaching, uh, what, what do we call Little League football? Anybody in here know? Pee wee football. Okay, what do, what do we call little league football uh, if you if you wasn't born in the '60s like Kevin? Okay, I don't know what it's called. Little tights, little titans. I don't know what it's called. It might be called pee wee, It's called football. Well, I remember going out there and we were at the the, uh, the sports complex here in E Town. I believe it was, and several years ago, and and he was coaching these little kids. Now, these little kids had helmets. They looked just like bobblehead dolls, these kids did. These helmets were so gigantic, and their bodies were so little. These little kids would take off running down through there, and you knew it was a matter of time before they were going to crash. There was no way those little bodies could support those big heads. I mean, these helmets, and you could literally see them as they began to lose balance. And then they would just head plant like a, like a lawn dart. Pow! And then you'd have kids come over, and they'd help them each other, and they'd be getting up, and their heads were leaning forward, and they would posture them up and whatnot. But even in Pee Wee, Lily, whatever it was, one of the things that the coaches would always tell the kids who had the football, you know what they would tell them? Every football player here who's played in high school or any other time has been told this by your coach. Two hands on the ball. Keep two hands on the ball. And what you would see as those little kids would be running out there, they'd be running with one hand, head leaning over, and then all of a sudden they'd get hit, and all of a sudden the ball would go flying. And you're looking at the little kids, like every good little league coach does. Son, hang on to the ball with two hands. <laughs> Your coach loves you. <laughs> right? Well, you know what's really crazy? Is that from time to time, I watch college football. Even though I'm a Kentucky fan, sometimes it's hard to watch. I, I try to watch, okay? And sometimes I watch NFL football. Unlike Ronnie Rockford, I was at in bed at a decent time this morning. Roddy confessed this morning to his late hours watching the football game last night. But, you know, no judgment here on Ronnie. <laughs> Love Roddy. One of the things I've noticed, even in watching high-level football, is that these kids who have been trained, who have been playing all their life, still make the exact same mistake that these kids in the Pee Wee League with the big helmets falling over make it. I'm watching guys who are being paid 15, 25, 35, 40 million dollars a year running down through there with a ball in one hand, loose as a goose, and then all of a sudden they're hit or they're blindsided because that's what happens. That's what happens most of the time, Derek, is when one of these guys uh, fumble the football, it's where they've had the ball in one hand and then they're hit from behind or they're blindsided and you just see that ball just go flying because the ball wasn't secure. And you say, Trent, what's the application? This story seems completely preposterous. 
The application is this. The apostle Paul is telling us to hold fast. Hold fast to the teachings. Right? And we live in a world, especially within the church, that we're so loose with the word, we run around with it gripped with one hand when he's telling us in the Greek to seize the word, the teachings, to take hold of the teachings, and we run around handling the direction of God's word as though it's debatable and optional, and we wonder when we get blindsided and we're holding it way out here, why we lose it. The Apostle Paul says, hold fast. And I'm going to say to you, because I love you, and people have said this to me, it's hard to hold fast with a strong grip to the things of God when our hands are full of so many other things. You know what I'm talking about? I got God here, I got God there. I got a little bit of God here, I got a whole lot of me there. A little bit of God's plan, a whole lot of my plan. And we're running down through there, man. We're split down the middle. My plan's taking me this way. God's plan is being held loose out here, taking me this way. And all of a, all of a sudden, man, I'm just demolished. It's going to require us, and holding fast through the teachings of the Scripture, it's going to require us to let go of some things, to empty our hands of some things, that we might grip the things of God proportionate to the value of those things, which is with everything we have. Right? What are some of the things you're not willing to let go of? Yeah, I know. Because we can't carry these things. I don't feel loved by God. You are loved by God. Which one are you going to hang on to? You can't carry both of them. You can't. These things are diametrically opposed. These are contradictories. One's got to be surrendered. I feel guilty and ashamed. And I say to you, you are forgiven and restored. What are you going to hold on to? If I were you, I would hold on to being loved by God and being forgiven and restored, and I would grip it, man, white-knuckle it. I feel unseen and I like value. And I say to you the truth, God sees you, and the cross declares your value. Which will you hang on to? Right? Right? This ain't heavy stuff, man. This ain't deep stuff. This is simple stuff. This is honest stuff. And then he says this. He said, hold fast to the teachings we've passed on to you. And then he says this. Remember what I said earlier, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Do you remember earlier? False things had come via word of mouth, prophecy, and a letter. Now the Apostle Paul is saying, hold fast to these teachings, whether they come by word of mouth or by letter. What is he saying? It isn't the method. It's the content, right? It can't be the method because both are delivered in the same method. But the teachings are different. It's the content. These were teachings earlier that were ascribed to them that were untrue. And now he's saying, hold fast to these teachings. It's the teaching that we must hold fast to. You got that, right? And now we're going to close. 
Okay, we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now we're verse 16. We're going to close. And he closes like this. And you need to hear this. Okay, hear this. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and, and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your heart and strengthen you in every good deed and work. I read through that pretty quick, didn't I? Did you hear it? Listen to what Paul says. Hear this. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Not an agent of God. Not some angel he's going to send out there to help you. <laughs> May our Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is Paul praying for them. Himself. And God our Father. Notice Paul didn't say just his father. He says you're a child of God. Brother, sister, our father, listen, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. You see how Paul is driving home our identity, our value, what God has invested and declared about us? He's saying, know who you are. That's the reason the church is sometimes so weak. It's because half of us don't even know who we are. You're talking about an identity crisis. We mentioned this. We fill church seats and pews and venues all over E-Town, Kentucky, the United States, the world, and we leave. We exit these types of facilities still not knowing who we are. And you know what? We live like we don't know who we are. And then he says this. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father encourage your hearts. You know what that means, don't you? Encourage means to place courage into, to deposit courage. The implication is obvious. We may lack courage. It's hard to feel or deposit courage in a place that's already occupied fully residing courage. Paul's implying, hey guys, life is tough, man. You're under some real persecution. And I'm praying... In the absence of courage, that God and Jesus himself would encourage you or deposit courage into you. Right? Some of you like courage this morning. I'm not ashamed to say, Kevin, there's been many mornings I've liked courage. And I'd, I'd, I'd pick up my phone, I'd hear a ding. I'd pick it up and I'd pray for you, Brother Tree, and I love you. Without too much hyperbole, I just want to look up and say, fill me with courage. <laughs> Deposit courage in me. Oh, God, I'm lacking courage. Would you give me some courage? And then, a ding, I'd pick up on him. Jeff Darty, Trent, I love you. I appreciate you, brother. I'm halfway full. Ding. 
Derek Hensley. We've been doing this for over a month now, every day, designating a person on a given day to pray for and to intercede for. And all of a sudden, man, those mornings you wake up, man, and you feel like you're lacking courage, and you're full, bing, 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 courage, courage, courage. People encouraging you, loving you, depositing you, and there is God himself in Jesus through them depositing this courage in you. And all this is happening before 8 o'clock in the morning. And my wife couldn't be more grateful. Right? Right. Okay. He says, I know what you're, I know what you're thinking. Trent, you've been closing for 15 minutes. Welcome to the Driven Church. <laughs> May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father encourage your hearts, listen to this, and strengthen you in every good deed and word. May the strength of God be exhibited in your deeds or actions, and the strength of God be exhibited in your words. Now, we understand actions. Actions require strength, right? Now, isn't that a strange statement? I need strong words. What does that even mean? What does that mean? That God would strengthen you in your words. Suggest we need strength in our words. Right? You have to understand this. This it's contextual. You see that. I'm not reading into that. Why do we need strength in our words? Well, what was the Apostle Paul talking about? He was talking about false teachings earlier, was he not? He was talking about apostasy, falling away. You know what he was saying when he said you need strength in your words? I'm praying that God would strengthen your words. Is that when you stand on the truth, these teachings, you're going to need his strength to stand on his words. Because you're going to be harassed, you're going to be challenged, you're going to be pushed, you're going to be pulled, you're going to be mocked, you're going to be laughed at, you're going to be rejected. And man, if you're not being provided strength through God to stand as you declare his word, you will wilt, Jack, like a flower in the, the deep summer heat. So Paul prays for them. Be strong in the word, in your words, in the teachings. Be strong. Now listen, being strong in God's truth doesn't mean that you're some heckler. It doesn't mean that you're some abrasive figure. It doesn't mean you're out there, man, not utilizing some form of diplomacy and being tactful. As a matter of fact, the scripture would suggest otherwise. Right? Gentle as doves. Shrewd as a serpent. That's what he said. I mean, you gotta, sometimes you got to be calculating. Diplomatic. That, that's not surrender or concession of the word. It's making sure that God is using you in a fashion where you can deposit that truth in a place that might receive it. You know what I'm talking about. You know those cats you run into at work. You know the ones... This is what God's word says. Love it or leave it. You're like, boy, the kingdom's growing here. You know what I'm talking about? You ever been around those people? You have, ain't you? Oh, some of you have been those people. Oh, oh we were going to have two baptisms, maybe four or five. 
But there's times that we have to be wise, diplomatic, but never conceding the truth. Never conceding the truth. Tony Evans told a story, and you know when Tony Evans tells stories, they're worth listening to, ain't they, Chase? Tony Evans tells a story, you're like, I don't want to listen to Tony Evans. That's Tony Evans telling a story. Well, this morning, this Trent Evans telling Tony Evans' story. So we're keeping it in the family, though. I've, I've given them credit, so I can share this. Can I not be in? I can, thank you. Tony Evans shares this story. He says, there was a pastor who came to a new church. Now, I'm not saying this story's true. It may be an antidote. After he had been there for a few months, he got to know two of the influential men of the church who were brothers. They were multimillionaires who were not known to be very godly men, but were members of the church. Shocker. But he was determined to have an authentic ministry at the church and would preach the word regardless. As time went on, one of the brothers died. The other brother who was still alive went to the pastor and said, Now, pastor, I know that you are going to be doing the funeral in a couple days, and I also know that you want to build a brand new church. Uh-oh. Mm. So I tell you what, I will put money in the church's account to build a brand new church if you say at my brother's funeral that he was a saint and eulogize him as such. All you've got to, say, to do is say that he was a saint. You don't have to worry about your new church building. It'll be paid for, taken care of. The pastor felt himself on the horns of a dilemma. On one hand, he desired to be authentic. And on the other hand, he needed to ca the cash for his church. The question was how to build his new church with the money sitting right in front of him and yet be authentic when this guy was a crook. The pastor thought for a second and then said to the man, well, I will do it. The businessman wrote out a check for hundreds of thousands of dollars and gave it to the pastor. The pastor deposited the money in the bank account of the church, and when it came time for the funeral, he got up to do the eulogy. As he stood, he said, ladies and gentlemen, we are here today to eulogize a very ungodly sinner. He was a very wicked man who was unfaithful to his wife, who was hot-tempered, selfish, an egomaniac. He abused his children, he was ruthless in business, and he was a pure hypocrite. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> right? 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 That's authentic, right? He said, okay. Yeah. God will allow me to navigate this to the benefit of the church and yet not compromise the truth. Both things accomplished. Isn't that... And you've been in those situations, have you not? Where you felt like you were being challenged? And before I go any further, I'm going to ask the young ladies to go ahead and get ready with Derek and, and Taylor. This is going to be a wonderful moment this morning, guys. But there's times in our lives, man, where we feel, we feel challenged, don't we? When we're trying to navigate those horn dilemmas. And the Apostle Paul is saying to this young church, and this was a young church, man, these were babies. I mean, these were toddlers, dirty diaper Christians. You know what I'm talking about? That's who these guys were. These are... And Paul was saying to them, hey, guys, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings I've given you, the teachings that may have been given through word of mouth or through a letter, but the teachings themselves. Hold fast to those things.
because you are sons and daughters of God, loved by him, first fruits. So the question you and I ask ourselves, finishing 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, is, who am I? Who am I? Who are you in God? Who are you? Own that, acknowledge that, possess that. And because this is your identity, you are then charged by God and His Word and the Scriptures to live out a life in accordance to the truth of the teaching of the Scriptures. Are you with me? Are you with me? Has someone gone down to be with the kids? Carrie, bring the kids up. Okay. So how, how does this play out for us? How does it play out for us? I should be able to look at your life and you should be able to look at my life. And one of the first things you should be able to know of me is if I know who I am. We don't need to be living in a church age of a schizophrenic church where you got split personalities. On Monday I'm this, Tuesday I'm that, Wednesday I'm this, Thursday I'm this, Friday... And all Sunday, man, I'll tighten it up and I'll slide right in. And then come Monday, I'll loosen it all back up. That's not who God's called us to be. And that's not who God has called you as an individual to be. There's not a dad in here who's been called to be that. There's not a mom in here who's called to be that. There's not a son or a daughter that's been called to be that. Every one of us have been called forth by God as followers of Jesus, as first fruits, identified, charged to live a life pleasing to Him and effective in expanding the kingdom. Is that your life? So I'm going to ask Carrie if she would come just for a moment. And so that's the question I posed to you this morning. Is that who you really are? Is that who you're really being? If it's not, why? Why? Wouldn't today be a great day to say this is who I really am and this is how I'm going to begin to live my life? I'm going to ask you guys to stand with me just for a moment. Just for a moment, no, uh, no gimmicks, no tricks, no, you know, bait and switch. We ain't, we're not doing that. But I would say to you this morning, we're going to worship for a moment. Carrie's going to lead us. And if you feel like you're in that place, man, where there was a time in your life where your identity was so much more clear and your identity in your life so matched, that everyone that come into contact with you wasn't asking for identification. They knew who you were. If that's you this morning, if you're in that place, man, today would be a good day to share some things up, wouldn't it? Share some things up. Yeah. So with your heads bowed, your eyes closed out of respect for your brother and your sister to your left and your right because this isn't about what you think about them. 
I'm asking you about you and who you are, Mom, who you are, Dad, who you are, Son, who you are, Daughter. In this physical world, you just take your dad's name, and you are by nature, by, by the social construct in which we operate, you just inherit your father's name, and you're identified with your father. Spiritually speaking, that's not how it works. There's a choice in this. There's a choice in this. The father calls. It's your opportunity to respond. Choose today your identity. Choose today to respond to Jesus with an affirmative acknowledging and embracing the goodness and the mercy of the gospel. A great day to do that. This is your moment.